Hi, you're listening to the Hand in Honour History podcast. In this series, you'll hear queer stories woven from a collection of oral history interviews that took place across Tyneside in 2021, with young LGBTQ plus people interviewing an older generation of lesbian, gay and trans activists about what queer life was like in Newcastle in the 1970s, 80s and 90s, and what they got up to to affect change for the better. I'm Kate Jobson and I'm one of the interviewers. And I'm Richard Bliss, one of the project's creators and coordinators. I helped set up the project because it felt really important to record what was going on in the North East. When I was young, I didn't feel like I had a history that I could lean on. And when I was looking at what was going on at the moment, it felt a bit like everything was recorded in London or Manchester or maybe Brighton. And I wanted to make sure that the activism that had happened in the North East was also included in that history. And why did you want to get involved, Caitlin? I was brought up by the queer community in Newcastle and as I'm a queer woman, I feel like I want to learn a lot more about how that actually came about and the everyday activism that they took part in that I have no idea about, even though they are the people that brought me up. And here's episode one. In this first episode, we go on a whistle-stop tour of Tyneside queer activism from the 1970s through to the early 90s. A kind of timeline of coming out stories, the burgeoning gay scene and women's scene, and the beginnings of services set up by and for the community. And in the 80s, the bigger coming together of lesbians, gay men and other queers as a more collective whole. Although not always harmonious. In the fight against AIDS and the Thatcher government's homophobic Section 28 legislation, which sought to halt the acceptability of queer people and their families in the wider society. Now, the 67 Sexual Offences Act was pretty thin and minimal what it did for men and women were never, you know, lesbianism was never, you know, in the 1867 the Sexual Offences Act, it wasn't, it wasn't criminalised, you know, because allegedly Queen Victoria didn't believe it existed. So it was both a, a liberating time because there were no rules and you could, you know, it didn't matter what you did because it was illegal anyway. And we, we all knew people who'd come a cropper, you know, either with the police or at work, through, through employers, sacking them, or through wives or partners finding out. So in a sense, it didn't matter. then. So it was, it was kind of liberating in a way that the current legal protections i mean the current legal framework is is a lot more secure so i'm for example i'm married to another man but it feels like we're more aping heterosexuality these days than being different and alternative which we were in the 70s and 80s my experience is about being work class closeted catholic i've discovered there was a women's liberation group meeting town in a pub and I went there on my own and there was lesbians there and that was really quite shocking and exciting at the same time I'd never met a lesbian nor had I known anybody who'd been to university you imagine this kind of little life I mean there's not it's 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 a classic working class life really but you don't go but more people go to university now so um I started to describe myself as bisexual. I didn't tell my husband I was doing that. 
But eventually, so eventually I realised I couldn't stop anymore. Up till this point, remember, it's not long since the law's been changed. So most lesbians have lived closeted lives in meeting in bars, no political activity, nothing to politicise around. The women's movement was scared of lesbianism, so it was for heterosexual white middle-class women, really. That didn't really belong there, but... Um, so there was fights within the women's movement about lesbianism. Me and Jackie worked at the psychiatric hospital. She was training to be a nurse as well. I was qualified by this time. And she approached me and said, did I know anything about the women's movement in Newcastle? So I took her along to the pub. And then we got friendly. And then we started a relationship. And then I left my husband. She was within about four weeks of getting married. That was what ordered reception was set to cancel the whole lot. I moved out of the house with my husband. It was just so this I mean that's the first lesbian action that is if that's what that is. When was it that you kind of both got involved within kind of being an activist? I think a lot of it was to do with the fact that we did have things like the Senate bar and the women's centre. So there were um, lots of us together. And um, if people, if some of the women, for instance, I remember two of the women went to one of the clubs and um, they got thrown out and beaten up and stuff. So we decided, and it was kind of getting to be a regular thing. So then we decided that we'd have to defend ourselves and we did quite a lot of teaching ourselves self-defense which was a really useful thing to do because it kind of brought us together because it wasn't just about physical things it was also about um having the confidence to use your voice and to walk strong and all that sort of thing and also we wanted we i remember going around and painting double axe signs on the pavements uh, <laughs> and stuff because we wanted to people to know that we were there and we existed and we were proud to be there it was a hard life. A bit but, more. I mean, it was a it was a tough old world. It was a tough old world. It was great as well. I had I had the time had of my time. life. Had <laughs> the great time. Time as that. It was tough. But the thing about it, it was absolutely brilliant. You felt very much part of a quite a small community, but yeah. the community was strong and very diverse. Like you would meet people from all different walks of life and the only thing that bound them together was the fact that they were gay or lesbian and it was uh, it was a fascinating world you met people you would never have uh, met in other circumstances i got involved in the campaign for homosexual equality cage and there was a growing branch in newcastle we set up a friend group in Newcastle in late 77 because we recognised that people were lonely and needed some way of talking to others who were fairly well together. And the best way of doing that was providing a sort of Samaritans line, which started off in early 79 
once a week and then very quickly became twice a week and then three times a week and then five times a week. Doing one or two nights a week as I did on Friends right from 79 through to 89 meant that you were involved in things. You were going to discos as well as doing the telephone line. You were meeting people. Uh, indeed, I had a friend and then I didn't have a friend and then in May 1984 uh, I met the person who has put up with me for the last 37 and a bit years and uh, we live together here in Gosforth. At some stage and it might have been around about the same sort of time as those other women got involved we set up because what we used to get on the friend calls was we usually spoke to men and then you know because we weren't on necessarily so few of us the occasional woman that rang up often spoke to a man and sometimes because you used to do two at a time didn't you in friend as i remember yeah. you, you never were on on your own and sometimes you could hear the bloke talking to a woman the friend committee agreed that we could start a specifically lesbians only evening where they could say for sure, so they could call it lesbians on friend or something. And might, they might even call it lesbian line, but it, there would only be women on the, on the switchboard that night. It was absolutely not the case. And I kind of understand this in a way um, that you could tell men that they couldn't ring up. You said to women, if you ring up, you can be guaranteed a, a woman to talk to, a lesbian to talk to. We set that up and that, that worked to a certain extent. What tended to happen on that night was you did get some women ringing up, more women rang up and you could go through the various options that were available. But also um, you got some men ringing up. I mean, it was a like a magnet for that kind of straight man that wants to ring up and talk to a lesbian. The women's centre was on the back of the RCC. So Rape Crisis had the funding. So they and lesbian line started meeting in they had a meeting room well they had a couple of meeting rooms a room that we used for social things but again it was you know alongside lesbians on the left used to meet there if they were still called that you know so the, we had a lesbian disco every how often did we have that yeah, once a month but that was by lesbian line that lesbian line yeah. used to run that even before that we used to um meet in the women's centre, didn't it? It was the only women's space in Newcastle, basically. Everywhere else was, you were always in a tiny minority of um, gay people. You know, the vast majority of them were men. I came to Newcastle in 1980 to study law um, and because I decided to become a solicitor um, because at the time, lesbian mothers were regularly losing custody of their children um, in the family courts. And I can remember thinking, we need more sympathetic solicitors. And then thinking, well, instead of saying we need more, just go and do it. So um, when I arrived in Newcastle and found my way to the Senate bar, there were just so many lesbians and so many lesbian feminists it was unbelievable it was just so refreshing it was fabulous so yeah i look back on those days with real fondness and and just meant there was the option 
to not to not really do that much with the gay men, but just to focus on lesbian issues. Um, and it was it was fantastic. There were lots of us, and it was a time of real strength, as I recall. I guess you always look back with a degree of nostalgia, and a time of real stroppiness. We were stroppy dykes, and um, proud of it. Um, I think we did have a strong lesbian community, yes, we did. I, I, um, I think that, that came a bit later. That came as a result of carving out that space and, and doing women-only things. That very much made that, that community. I think, Sarah, you talked a bit about you were inspired by, like, the miners' strikes and that kind of um, ignited your activism. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was just wondering if we could go into that a bit because I don't I don't know much about this well I suppose it's like the heady days of Thatcher <laughs> and like I moved from the south to the north and I just saw this whole perspective on the country that I'd never seen before or been exposed to and one of them sort of running parallel to what we were doing was the miners um and then there was Section 28 was introduced and a lot of stuff, you know, Margaret Thatcher, the milk stature, she stopped milk in, free milk in schools. I mean, end, the list is endless, you know. Um, and I think that just, everyone was angry, actually. And I think as young people, we were like angry that we didn't have these rights anymore and that things have been, and especially being queer and having, and I, I had a son then, well, I still do, um, but he was little, and so that was the direct effect, the Section 28, on his education. And I thought, no, I didn't sign up for that, and I definitely didn't vote for you. Um, and I think we, we, although we were doing our queer thing, you know, a lot of friends of mine were straight or, or whatever, um, and the whole movement was pushing along, and we were fighting for our, our rights within that to, to be seen and be heard, really. So there was no queer spaces, really. I mean, there was two, I think, the Casablanca and the Senate bar. And that was about the time Adrian Gabb was setting up the, the courtyard down by the station. And that was it, really. We made our own. As I said before, there wasn't, I didn't know of anything, but we made our own because there was nothing there for us. I really love what you're all kind of saying about how coming to Newcastle and finding the queer art scene has like helped your identities and like helped you grow and like find each other. I think that's just like such a wonderful thing. Um, I was just wondering if you could talk a bit about how, like just like specifically how did the, like meeting each other like help your identities to grow or like did it help your confidence at all? I don't know if it was so conscious as that, but when you meet like-minded people and you suddenly think, ooh, we're all like-minded, I think it was just an organic process, actually. Um, and doing a lot of looking back, as we have since you started doing this project, um, I see how important every significant thing, everything we did had a significant thing. And that we lived our lives were as political beings, whether we knew it or not. And I think we developed our identity into what we are today together with a lot, lot of other people as well that had nothing back then, I think. At the time, uh, you know, it was sort of 1987. So the Conservative government had just sort of 
unveiled what was called Clause 27 at first and became Clause 28 um, under this idea that it was illegal to teach in schools that homosexuality was normal, that gay families was, should be respected, that you couldn't have books in libraries that promoted homosexuality, that whole thing that was clearly just this massive attack uh, on the queer community and really the first step to recriminalizing homosexuality. And it came on the wave of fear-mongering about AIDS that had been going on um, since the mid-80s. And it just felt like, uh, you know, we had to fight back. So there was this sense of um, a whole sort of community coming out, like people who wouldn't necessarily have wanted to be as public about their sexuality before were kind of like, yeah, we're going to say this, we're not going to put up with this, we're going to get out and we're going to do something about it. So there's this sort of like, it was our stonewall in a way. It was our chance to sort of like, you know, get involved and, you know, and just push back at this overwhelming, overwhelming homophobia that was in every part of life in those days. It was just like discrimination was just sewn into the way people thought and spoke. I think it's really easy to take for granted. I mean, especially me, like growing up in like a big queer family who also knew, I think being part of a queer community, what I found is it's not always just about, it's just about kind of even just people recognizing you and kind of being able to kind of be in a place where people understand you and respect you. And like not having that must have been really kind of. Yeah, that was hard, but you know, there was also that revolutionary moment of finding each other. Like we, we, you sort of found these other people who were fighting alongside you. Of course, it wasn't always harmonious. There was a lot of factionalism and there was a lot of separatism happening uh, with some of the sort of, you know, women's community didn't want anything to do with the gay men. There was all kinds of, you know, clashes internally, but more broadly, what was being forged was a movement. And I think what was being forged was LGBTQ. That was what was happening. That was the birth of that mentality that um, gay men and lesbians and trans people were not separate, but we were like all kind of in the barracks together, fighting together. That was certainly the first time that I was involved very definitely in in a, in a campaigning group that had primarily, well, lots of lesbians and gay men working together. And that some of that was, was tricky and challenging. And some of, those, some of those issues around, you know, gender dynamics around, um, you know, how meetings went, for example. And like, you know, and, and I think there was a real um, attempt by us all to make that work. So I I seem to remember that we had joint chairs, didn't we, at those meetings? We made sure there was always a woman and a man chair, joint chairing, which, yeah. you know, was, was, was great. But, you know, I, can rem I can't remember the detail of it, but I remember some, oh, for goodness sake, you know, that's typical men, you know, all of that stuff. And I think it really, but I think we were all very, very committed to fighting, um, fighting Section 20. And also it was around the time HIV and AIDS and, and I think so many lesbians were working in the health and social care sector and the voluntary sector around HIV and AIDS work that also I think that that politicized lesbians around working with gay men and and vice versa um, so and I think we sort of were getting used to each other weren't we in a way and and about how we might work together 
a lot of the men were really uh, sort of, I guess, had implicit sexual bias and hadn't dealt with that and didn't even have a vocabulary to know what that was, you know. So uh, there was, you know, it was a quite an amazing uh, time of struggle, like in that revolutionary moment, like these hot fires that kind of boil things up. So there was this sense of a minefield around gender politics and, uh, you know, uh, politics of sexuality that was evolving. We were all kind of um, learning this new terrain together. Uh, and, and I think the political actions did force people to get to know each other and support each other. So that there was a lot of stuff that, uh, you know, factionalism and disputes that, um, you know, always, I think that's always a thing with leftist movements, there's always a degree of factionalism. But in this case, I do think it led into the more liberated time of the 90s and the greater exposure in the media of positive images that started to um, allow a new generation to grow up without these, these divisions. Handing on Our History was created by Alice Swate and Richard Bliss and is an equal arts project funded by National Lottery Heritage Fund. This podcast was produced and edited by Julie Ballins, with music composed by Sarah Vangeli. The activists sharing their stories were Norman Powell, Pat Garrett, Louise Evan Wong, Shirley Bruce, Leslie Nicholson, Malcolm McCourt, Caroline Ayres, Sarah Vangeli, Wash Westmoreland and Melissa Gerlin. And they were interviewed by Kate Jobson, Jesse Alexander, Melody Sproats, Samantha Dunnicky, Alice Thwaite and Richard Bliss. If you are interested in accessing the full oral history interviews for research or other projects, please contact handingonourhistory at gmail.com. <laughs>